Hi, this is Ted from Book of Love, and you're listening to PFC Recorder. Hello there, I'm PF, this is my tape recorder. Coming up, comedian Russell Peters. And when you're a kid, you don't know that you're a different color than other people. You don't really realize it until yeah. somebody points it out or, you know, drives, drills it into your head every day. We'll hear more from Russell in just a bit. We have the song of the week from Beach House. I think you're really going to enjoy it. It's very cool. And of course, we're going to start off with a dumb bit. I don't have HBO, but I do listen to Bill Maher's uh, show real-time as a podcast. You can get it on iTunes. It's just the audio, which really is all you need. You don't need to see a lot of the visuals. He does, you know, uh, new rules. And uh, would you like to see these things we came up with? You don't really need to see the things he came up with him and his writers. I mean, it's, it's funny stuff, but it's, you know, you can get... I, I do it more for the, the, the political discussion because he does have some good people on his panel. And on the uh, show, September 18th, he had on his panel, uh, among other folks, uh, Chris Matthews, who my friend Jimmy Dore calls Chris Hardball, which I think is hilarious, and uh, Jorge Ramos from Univision, which I'm pronouncing with a French accent, which is strange. Well, I'm half French, so that's not that strange at all. But anyway, Jorge Ramos was on, and uh, the overtime segment, which actually is shown on YouTube, you can get that uh, just by going to YouTube. It's a, a question and answer thing where people during the show can send in questions, and then at the overtime uh, part of the show, which is online, not on actual HBO, they answer these questions. So they get on this. Uh, so they get a question about uh, the the British elections, and oh, I think I saw Salman Rushdie might have been the other panelist i think anyway they're asking about the british elections and the next subject goes to the uh, the iraq war and how that's affecting still british politics as well because you know people being for it and against it and things like that and the repercussions of it and uh jorge ramos uh says this it was clearly a mistake i mean in 2003 we made even the huge, republican candidates we, we made a, we made a huge mistake and, and as journalists i think it was also part of our responsibility we were silenced so Jorge Ramos, as a journalist, is taking responsibility and saying, you know, me, everybody, all the, all the journalists should have been louder in their objection to the war. And then Chris Matthews sitting there not only disagrees with him, but gets indignant and kind of dicky with him. And to borrow a, a phrase from Don Imus, Chris Matthews is the worst kind of person. Listen to what he says. And we didn't no, challenge. No, it's not true. Yeah, we did. We didn't challenge you did, George Bush. Your, keep we that weed to yourself. No, no, no. No, keep think, that weed to yourself. No, we opposed no, no. the war. I think. No, the, no, the weed doesn't work here. No, the, we weren't the for the is, war. Oh, really? Well, Bill Maher's not going to let him get away with that, is he? No. Otherwise, I opposed the war in every column I wrote. I, I did too. On television. And, so, and Michael I'm Moore sure got up at the Oscars. I'm sure you did. Don't be condescending. No, 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 he's not. What an awful, awful man Chris Matthews is, getting indignant with Jorge Ramos when he knows he's wrong, which I think that's probably why he's getting so indignant, because he knows he's wrong. And one of the things that he was uh, wrong about, well, here, let's. when the war was going on, I got some of these clips, um, kudos to Jimmy Dore, uh, some of these clips can be found online, a couple of them I'm going to play for you, only Jimmy Dore was able to unearth, and he was used him to make a, a slightly different point on one of his shows. And uh, I'm using them now to make a point that Chris Matthews is full of crap and owes Jorge Ramos an apology. But anyway, uh, this clip is uh, from around Christmas time. must have been either 2004 or 2005 during the Iraq War. And Chris Matthews has met with the president. And, uh, and Mr. I was against the war uh, says this about his meeting with the president. 
You felt sensitive. Yeah. I was with him last night, the president. We all went to see the president. You were there, went to see the president for our Christmas. You got to get your picture taken with him. It's like Santa Claus. And he's always very generous <laughs> and friendly. And I was wearing a red for? scarf, and I wanted to look a little bit festive for the occasion, look a little preppy. And he came up to me and said, look, Matthews, I didn't know you are that preppy. This is the president of the United States after his biggest victory. And he goes, I didn't know you were that preppy. And I said, well, you know, went to Holy Cross, but you guys started with well, all this. I don't even crap what he said at that point, actually, because what he didn't say was, oh, by the way, this war didn't really work out that well, uh, did it? We No weapons of mass destruction. Uh, we've got hundreds of thousands of innocent Iraqis. We've got a bunch of no-bid contracts. Uh, money is disappearing left and right. No, none of that. It's like, oh, you look really preppy. He's fangirling like I did when I hung out with Andy McCluskey and Paul Humphreys of OMD before their concert in Chicago. Remember that? Go back a couple episodes to listen to it. I mean, I was totally fangirling, and he's, he's outdoing me talking about the president of the United States during a war he supposedly opposed. Okay, well, his admiration for Bush doesn't stop there. For the greatest gamble since Roosevelt backed Britain before World War II, the president deserves credit. What? This gamble comes through, and it's not clear yet. If his gamble that he can create a democracy in the middle of the <laughs> Arab world and he does it, he belongs on Mount Rushmore. He pushed back hard, really hard. So you shut up, Jorge Ramos. All right, so back to the Phil Donahue thing. Now, the Donahue clips, these are amazing because if you go anywhere and try to find these on the Internet, you can't find them at all. It's like the Internet's been scrubbed completely clean, and somehow Jimmy Dore came up with them. And you can find them now on YouTube via Jimmy Dore. You go to uh, his Young Turks uh, show. Just type, just go to YouTube and type in Jimmy Dore, Donahue, Chris Matthews, and it'll come up. There's part one and part two, and you can see uh, the whole thing. And uh, But anyway, uh, he, he tries to push back with Donahue. This is back on the eve of the war. tries to push back uh, Donahue's criticism that he's, you know, that Chris Matthews is too inside the beltway. To be you know, I really do think we have a different attitude about the world in this country. I think you are a very good critic of this country. You're an excellent critic. You're like Michael Moore. You find all the things that's wrong with us. You're excellent about the corporate deal-making and the failure to protect blue-collar jobs and all that. You're very good at that. But I think it's always, the glass is always half-empty to you. It's always half empty. You're always negative. And I think that's a problem. I disagree with that point of view. I think this is the greatest country in the world that's with some very flaws. That's saying don't criticize No, I think, I think it's a point of view that starts with... I think with that some, I am blessed Because to be I think American you use all the... Accident you're always looking, <clears throat> finding evidence to argue there's something wrong with this country. And I think this country is a good country with flaws. And you think this country... There's is more. And as, as Jimmy was pointing out when he was playing these clips too, this is on the eve of the war. Okay, this is... And we'll, we'll get to the, uh, the big payoff here because you know what happens on the eve of the war with Donahue and MSNBC. But first, uh, let's let uh, Chris Matthews unload this nugget. Yes. And we are a great country because of those things. We're also a pioneering country. We're a country that's willing to go it alone. We're willing to be unpopular. We're yes. willing to do the right thing. And most of the time the world says the Yanks are crude, savage cowboys. But when World War I came along, World War II, Bosnia right. came along, they said, come on in, you Boy Scouts, and save us again. And we're called in to save the day so many times because yes. we are essentially a good country. Yes. And I think you don't think that. Well, the Iraqis didn't like Saddam Hussein a whole bunch or his two knucklehead sons, but they didn't say, come invade us and, and kill a bunch of us and, and destroy our country and bring unrest to the, the whole region around us. They didn't say that, I don't think. So, uh, and, and then Donnie, who goes on to you know, say, you know, we're about to send you know, uh, our young men and women into, into harm's way, and Matthew isn't saying that, you know, that we shouldn't be doing that or you're right. So what happened, of course, was, and we know this happened because a memo was leaked, 
And it was reported in New York Magazine and Huffington Post and a lot of other places that Chris Matthews went to the MSNBC executives. I mean, MSNBC is only five, six years old at this point. They're still struggling in the ratings. And they say, hey, look, Phil shouldn't be on the air, on our air, because he's anti-war and it's gonna be, we're going to look bad. We're going to look you know, unpatriotic and everyone else, we're going to get trounced. And he even said this in, in public and later had to apologize to Donahue. Donahue said, Chris came and apologized to me, but he didn't deny it. Okay, so that's uh, that's so when you hear him say say this. No, otherwise I opposed the war in every column I wrote. I, I did too. Perhaps we'll be reminded, uh, like I am, of the car talk guys whenever uh, they disagree with each other and jokingly say "Bo Gus." Only sadly, this was no joke. This episode of PF's Tape Recorder is brought to you by Home Shirts Cleveland. For all of your Northeast Ohio vintage t-shirt needs, visit homeshirts.com forward slash Cleveland. You'll also find links to the original Cincy Shirts site, as well as Home Shirts Indianapolis, with more cities to come. That's homeshirts.com forward slash Cleveland. Now, on with the show. Russell Peters is a stand-up comedian who started his career in his native Toronto in 1989. He now sells out theaters and arenas across the country and around the world. It's very huge having him on the podcast. Here now is our interview with Russell Peters. So, uh, so what's the latest and the greatest you're working on, man? You always got your, your finger in some kind of pie. Well, we've uh, we, we're still doing a tour. We thought it was going to end in November, and now it's not going to until possibly March of next year. So Holy cow! They just keep adding dates on it, which is not a big problem. That's a good thing. Yeah. A good problem to have. Yeah, that, that that is a good problem to have. Um, I will also tell you what I what I tell uh, uh, all of your countrymen that I interview and countrywomen is that I am crazy for your for your country and particularly your hometown. Toronto, Brampton. Yeah, Toronto. <laughs> I don't think I've ever been to Brampton. I've been to Mississauga. Where, been, uh, oh, you want, I have a house in Mississauga, funny enough. Where oh, are you, in Columbus? I am Cincinnati? in Cincinnati. Cincinnati. You, you know your area codes, man. Well done. I do. <laughs> I, do. I knew it was Ohio. <laughs> ah, very well spotted. Cool. So, uh, when you were starting out in comedy, of course, you also had kind of an interest in, uh, in hip-hop music as well. Was there ever a notion to make that the focus? And, uh, nah, no? I... I, I you know, I, I, lo- I love hip-hop, and I love DJing and stuff, but I was never going to be in that industry ever. I, I, you know, funny enough, I DJed for a, uh, a rapper or two when they were performing at concerts, but it was never going to be my thing. It wasn't what I liked doing. Oh, uh, okay. And uh, so, I guess, were you a funny kid growing up? I guess uh, you uh, you know grew up with uh, uh, Indian parents. Your parents came from India? Was that the... That, that's that's where they came from. That is correct. All right, I, am, I was properly informed. But the animals, they, they uh, definitely did come from there. Some struggles in school, I guess. You know, uh, growing up in the seventies and eighties in Canada it was a different time. So we were the new immigrants then, and, and so there was a little hesitation. And now it's 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 very different there now. That's cool. And have you found the same thing in the U.S.? Have things gotten better in North America as a whole, or is it uh, are things a little different sometimes? I mean, you know, it's. It, I don't think people's attitudes towards race are what they used to be. Uh, I think for the most part, we've all learned to get along. 
Uh, I'm sure, you know, there's sure there's still issues out there, but but I don't think they're uh, the first thought on people's minds. Now, what I would always learned, is particularly in college, that I was, this was pointed out to me, even though I'm a huge canophile, is that the Canada always had this idea of the mosaic concept, and America always had this concept of the melting pot. Do you think that's right. an accurate assessment? No, that's definitely what it is. Oh. And uh, But, you know, having lived in the United States for 10 years now, I kind of see how uh, melting pot works a little bit better. That's what, yeah, that's what people always say. My professor in, in uh, college was Canadian, and he said he, he much prefers the melting pot concept, even though the mosaic concept not a, a bad idea, but of the two, uh, melting pot is probably better. Yeah, the, yeah, the problem is people stay separated when it's right. uh, a mosaic. Yeah, yeah. And uh, when it's a melting pot, everybody gets to uh, experience everybody else's culture right. to a certain degree, some sort of hybrid of it. And, you know, there's, there's good there's good to both sides of that, but um, I, I, I kind of like the melting pot aspect. So do you think that mosaic concept kind of framed your uh, ideas of, of race and how races deal with each other and work with each other, or do you think it would have been the same had you grown up in America? No, I think that definitely framed it, and and dealt, dealing with racism at a young age, being reminded that you, and when you're a kid, you don't know that you're a different color than other people. You don't really realize it. Until yeah. somebody points it out, or you know, drives drills it into your head every day. So I, I was reading that your your dad kind of helped you, uh, you know, as far as taking boxing and things, and kind of the way to, to thwart police. Was was that helpful, or did, did humor eventually become a better weapon? It, you know, the humor used to make uh, when I would get beat up before I started boxing. The humor was my way to sort of get beaten up less. <laughs> and then when I learned how to fight. I used my humor to to incite in it a little bit more, and then I would beat them up. So it was more fun for me then. So what <laughs> payback, you... payback's a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. So when you started, did you kind of have a general idea of what your voice was going to be? It was going to be this kind of thing of looking at the way people deal with each other, or did you kind of like look at other comics and go, I kind of like that kind of humor, let me try to pursue that? Now, you know, when I started, I, was ni- I just turned 19. It was 1989, so... Um, I was a really, as far, in 1989, a 19-year-old kid doing stand-up was, was considered very, very young. And um, and I had no life experience, and I had nobody, I'd never been around anybody in the entertainment industry ever, whether it was on any level, you know, even in the amateur level. Just not, so no experience in that world, and I just came in very, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and excited hmm. about the whole thing. And, you know, you, you learn along the way how to play the game. And you think that was easier in in Toronto since it was such a big city, or would you've had the same opportunity? You think in Detroit or Philadelphia or Cleveland, for that matter? Uh, um, I mean, I'm sure the process is the same no matter where you are. Uh, it's a question of uh, you know, I just I just really like making people laugh, so I don't think it mattered if I was in yeah Cleveland or, or Detroit. It would have been the same thing. Uh, you know, when you're on the amateur circuit, nothing really matters at that point. And it's just about getting on stage. That's true. They do the work, as, as Seinfeld always advised people to do. Mm-hmm. And I guess you were kind of given the same advice by George Carlin, if I recall. Absolutely. Yeah. Get on stage as much as possible. Doesn't matter. If there's a band playing and just take a break, ask if you can do five minutes. Ah, there you go. And, mm-hmm. I, and I guess really that's what with any art form. Writing, just keep writing. Be a musician, keep playing. <laughs> you know? They, um, yeah, you know, at that time, I mean, I, I my writing was... I would literally 
literally write down like every word I would say on stage. Like if I was going to say, um, I would write that down. <laughs> <laughs> it got to the point where it was like ridiculous when you'd read it. You'd be like, oh, this is terrible. It was literally transcribed from everything that came out of my mouth on stage. That's funny. And then I, and then I, I dropped that, you know, a few years in, I was like, this is ridiculous. And I started just writing little notes. Ah. And, uh, and, and now I don't even have that anymore. It's just all in my head. And I have a friend of mine who watches my set and writes down what the, you know, he names it and then gives me a list of here's what you did tonight. I don't know if you heard. Uh, he was like, he like, here's what you did and here's what you forgot to do. And uh, here's where this should have been and this should have been there. And, and, uh, it makes it easier for me. It's like a caddy. Your comedy caddy. Yeah, pretty much. He, re- he really is a comedy caddy. I guess that's the best way of putting it. That's funny. I don't know if you heard uh, when Norm Macdonald was on uh, Marin's podcast a couple years ago. He talked about doing the uh, Montreal Comedy Festival, and he was walking out. With, he went out with Sinbad before the show, and Sinbad went to try to buy some socks, and no one would help him. And so he gets back, and Norm goes, "I go on and do my my set rote like I memorized it." Sinbad comes on and goes, "What's the deal with sock stores?" And he just destroys with ten minutes about a sock store he was in like only two hours ago. It's crazy. <laughs> So, um, speaking of uh, Norm, uh, you did not return for last comic standing, and, and uh, Norm uh, replaced you, of course. What uh, was, did you not feel like doing it, or would you have other commitments? Or no, I. You know, it's funny as I really wanted to do it, and I never got asked to do it. Back. Oh. I never got. I never got asked back, and then uh, that's a strange one. I, I, you know, the last I had heard that they they weren't going to do the second season, and then then I heard that they were doing it, and then Norm was doing it, and I'm like, well, if I'm going to be replaced by anybody. I guess another Canadian who's very funny would be uh, is fine by me. There you go. I'm a fa- I'm a fan of Norm's anyway, so oh yeah, it's not like they replaced me with somebody. Sh- so that's <laughs> good. <laughs> that's true. What do you think of comedy competitions? A lot of controversy, but people still do them, and you know people still. I I honestly would I, I hate comedy competitions personally. Like to enter them, it's so subjective, and I mean, you know, you 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 know, it depends on who the person is judging you. You know. It's, I, I remember being in one in 1993 in Toronto, and I lost. Uh, uh, was, and I can remember everybody who came in first, second, and third, and how pissed they were, because I had a great set that night, but I lost, and I was so pissed. And, well, I guess in the long run, it didn't matter, did it? <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the thing, too, is I guess competitions, they're just they're geared more toward just doing small, mo- more like jokey jokes. You really can't. If you tell a story, you're really going out on a limb because that story doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, and I'm a storyteller, so there that's why help comedy just yeah. don't work for me. You give me five minutes, and I panic. That's why I don't really do much on uh, the late night circuit because oh, yeah. whenever they ask me for five minutes, they uh, I get really panicky, and I and I don't know where to trim, and I don't know, you know, it, it takes me out of my rhythm. Somebody told me I can't remember who it was. They did uh, the Seth Meyers show. And what they do is they go out to the clubs and they watch your set and then they say, do minutes four through nine. They just take it, they just suck that part of that out of the set and instead of having you do like a yeah, best pretty of... pretty much that's what they did. When I did yeah. uh, Fallon uh, a couple of years ago, they uh, they followed me around. They were like, yeah, no, change this, don't do that, uh, add this, don't, you know, and I'm like, all right. And uh, I mean, it worked out for the best. I mean, they knew what was going to work on TV ultimately. That's yeah. That's, uh, you know, that's had you job. left it up to me, I would have done one thing, and it might have just tanked. So, I mean, they do definitely know what they're doing when they're when they're guiding you that way. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't know if you said Gary Goldman said a couple of months ago on uh, Conan. He did the one. He did one thing and stuck with it. And man, it was it worked though. Hit it out of the park. 
Yeah, you know, Gary's, again, one of those guys who can do that. Yeah. Very he talented. writes those kinds of jokes. Um, so you'd be a good person to ask then. What do you what do you make it? Well, it's kind of died down a little bit, but this whole PC controversy is is it a controversy or is it much ado about nothing? It's much ado about nothing. I mean, PC is not controversy. It's that's uh, to me, it's like religion. It's man made. It's, uh, it's it's not real. Uh, you know, people focus on the word so much they forget about the intent. And uh, intent to me is way more important than the words. You had famously said once that uh, you, you didn't observe this, you didn't uh, make up the stereotypes. You just observed them, and uh, that's right. Is it? But is it difficult to you know to try to, to dig a little deeper? Because when I do my dumb little comedy bits around these interviews on my podcast, I try to you know be kind of inventive. And you know, if I hear another Bill Maher Asian driving joke, I think I'm going to throw up. I mean, it's it's not that it's <laughs> offensive. It's just lame. We've heard it. Okay, the Asians supposedly can't drive. Let's move on. I'm 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 half French. Uh, enough of yeah, the, you, you, enough of the you surrender have to jokes. Go, you have to go below the surface. Right, right, right. You have to go to what's real to those people. Yes. And when you get to real, what's real with those people, they connect with you. And the minute you're making fun of people and they connect with you, you're golden because they understand that you understand them. Now, is it difficult to find that level, but still at a level where people understand? No, I mean, it's, I mean, I just, I, I'm fortunate enough to be able to connect with people like that. It's just my, I guess it's just the way I was designed. And uh, uh, so for me, it's a very normal, natural, easy thing for me to do. Um, when people try to do it, it's, you can see it's forced and it's a little awkward. And so that's, do you also that just to the years of practice that, like, again, you're just comfortable in that mode? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's my lane and I'm going to stay in my lane. <clears throat> and, uh, and I guess... I'm not going to try and do a type of comedy that's not for me or not something that I... Uh, but, but, you know, I can't go do the nerd comedy because I, I didn't like dirty stuff. I didn't like the comics. I didn't like the sci-fi. I like breakdancing and DJing and rapping. There you go. Boxing. <laughs> so what kind of things do you find funny that maybe you don't actually do on stage? Like, I know some guys, you know, like, do jokey jokes at a punchlines, and here they really like slapstick, but, of course, you know, slapstick isn't really... You can't do that in stand-up comedy unless you're a physical comic. I mean, I... I, I love... I love making horrible puns all day. Oh, there you go. I, I, I easily spit the the worst jokes you've ever heard off stage, and people go look at me all the time like, I don't know how you make a career <laughs> when this is what you think is funny. And I'm like, hey, I don't do it on stage. This is for off stage. <laughs> so uh, of all these projects that you've done over the years, is there something that's still the, the, the big project has yet to be accomplished? Is something you really got your sights <clears throat> set on, or have you pretty much done all that you wanted to do? I mean, you know, I've been doing it 26 years. Uh, I'm fortunate enough fortunate enough to have done uh, four arena tours, um, and that's on four different tours. So it's not like, you know, four times in arenas. Four different tours in an arena, which which I think is unprecedented still, so that's good news. Um, uh, but there's other stuff I want to do. I want to get in a little, delve into a little bit more acting and see... Uh, if I can't make that my uh, second love, uh, have you done uh, a lot of acting? Not a lot. I just wrapped a movie in August. I was the lead. We shot it in Austin, Texas. It was me and Faze on Love. Okay. And then, uh, and you know, I get little parts here and there. I just did an episode of BoJack Horseman, and uh, I got a I got a, a voice in the uh, Jungle Book coming out next year. Oh, nice. 
Yeah, so you know, uh, you know, things things are looking nice. Uh, I can't complain about anything. They are. Well, very cool, yeah. and and still very popular. You're still a a, a a a huge name, not a not a flash in the pan arena tour like some folks have done. <laughs> well, that I know, but they harp on those guys instead of me. They do. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, but you're you're still out there, still out there kicking it, as they say. That's it. All right, man. Well, it's okay to be under the radar, I guess, a little bit. Huh? I guess, but you know, but you have your audience, and that's that's what a lot of guys. I mean, you're still big, but you also have that dedicated audience. So you're, if you know, if you, yeah. you just have to. My show fans up. are really solid for me. They're right. They're there. They're always they're always there for me. That's what Brigley always said. He goes, you know, if I could just show up and there's 500 people that show up to see me when I come through once a year, I'm golden. And you know, yeah, it, it works out. Well, terrific, man. Well, I appreciate you doing this. Thanks for doing this. Hopefully we'll see you back in Cincinnati thanks, sometime buddy. soon as well. And this will be in print okay. and city pages and all that fun stuff. All right. And, all right thanks, man. Awesome. All right. Bye. Thank you, buddy. Bye. Thanks again, Russell Peters, for being on the show. You can catch Russell in Minnesota in the Twin Cities there at the House of Comedy in Bloomington, specifically October 6th through the 7th. Uh, It's two nights there, four shows. Check those out. Then he's in Milwaukee, Hammond, Indiana, Columbus, Ohio, Cleveland, Atlanta, on and on. He says this this thing's going to go through until March, as he was telling us. So um, a lot of chances to catch Russell wherever you are. If you want information on specifics for those shows, go to russellpeters.com. Okay, so uh, let me see. just wanted to remind you to check out Bob Gray's book, Attack of the Melon Heads. If you can sell enough of these things, it's going to be turned into a movie. So check that out. And again, we're going to have Bob on in a couple of weeks to discuss uh, how this went from being a screenplay to a book and hopefully back to being a screenplay and a movie. I'm uh, going to forego the uh, credits this week. If you want to know who involved in the show, go back and uh, listen to an old episode and you might have some fun there as well. We're going to get to the song of the week now. Song of the week is from Beach House. They're what's uh, called a dream pop duo from Baltimore. And I guess dream pop is... Uh, uh, fairly accurate. I, I've never been a huge fan of Beach House. They were recommended to me uh, a couple of years ago by a friend of my wife's, and I, I dug them okay. And uh, they kind of put me in the mind of cults, although I think Beach House started before cults did. But anyway, uh, this song is really cool. Beach House fans agree it is probably their best song ever, and non-Beach House fans are coming on board. Our song of the week is Space Song from Beach House. So long, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.